I was once asked, how's your week going? And I said to them, if it was a fish, I would throw it back. <laughs> Anybody having a week like that? All right, all right. Here's what I want you to remember. Life can be tough, but God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. And we'll just stand right there. Sometimes they ask people, how you doing? And they say, I'm here. And I tell them, we'll take it. We'll take it. You know, there's always a point on a flight when the descent officially begins. Passengers are instructed to get back in their seats, put away their trays, and buckle up. Attendants come by one last time to collect any trash. Electronics are stowed under the seat in front of you. And things usually get a little bumpy as the plane lowers from smooth air to whatever air happens to be on the ground. In a very real sense, we... In real sense, we have now started our descent in the book of Colossians. Many of you thought this flight would never end, but we have begun our descent. Uh, Colossians has been quite a flight, but there's still a little bit more to go. I love descents. I, if I'm near a window, I always pop the window open. I like to look down. I, I like to come through the clouds. I like to see the city. Uh, that we're going to land in. I, I just love going down in an airplane if it's controlled and slow and a smooth landing. I can think of other ways going down may not be quite as enjoyable. Uh, some of the most interesting stuff on any flight comes toward the end for me. Just among other things, wherever it was you're going, you're almost there. You're, you're almost there. There's anticipation wrapped up in a landing. You may be curious about our next flight here at, uh, you know, our particular uh, airlines. So here, here you go. After we're done with Colossians, we are going to trek through the Gospel of Mark. Now, a lot of people don't know a lot about Mark, and Mark doesn't get a ton of work. Almost everyone who knows anything considers Mark to be the oldest of the four Gospels. I want you to think about that. Generally, historically speaking, whatever is the shortest and the most succinct is usually the oldest. People annotate from there. So here's what we know about Mark. It is succinct. It's direct. At times, Mark is just a little jarring. If I could use an old metaphor, Mark often shifts without a clutch. It just sort of jams it in gear. Unless you spend a lot of time in Mark, you're going to run into things you didn't know were in the Bible. You just are. You could argue that Matthew is essentially an annotated version of Mark. In fact, 90% of Mark is contained in Matthew. 90%. And 90%, 97% of Mark is contained somewhere in the Gospels. Mark is the source. Mark clearly seems to be sort of the standard that these later Gospels used as one of the sources along. You know, Matthew would have been there. So Matthew's going to use his memory. Luke is a reporter 
in, in a sense. He's a Gentile doctor, but he certainly wasn't there. Mark's going to be something he uses as well. Mark puts me in mind of the old police drama Dragnet. How many of you remember Dragnet from the olden days? There was a character on there named Jack Webb, who was the actor. There, he, the character he played was a rather unemotional guy. And he would be doing interviews with people and police interviews with people, and they would just be prattling on and on. And he would always say, just the facts. Often, ma'am. Yes, just the facts, ma'am. That's kind of what Mark gives us, is just the facts. We're going to actually be in Mark in three weeks. So we are going to finish uh, next week with Colossians, and then I'm going to wrap the whole thing up, and then we'll go right into Mark. So we are clearly getting there. As I get older, I am increasingly aware that all we really have is the present, That's what we have. One thing I know for sure, the past is gone. The past is gone. Uh, The future is uncertain. We we don't know. What we do know is if Jesus doesn't come back, we're all going to die. But apart from that, we don't have a lot. What we have is right now. It's what's right in front of us. Right now. In many ways, Colossians is a letter addressed to the right now. And Colossians really says, here are some beliefs you need to discard right now. Here are some things in which you need to ground yourself right now. And, and tonight we're going to get, here are some things that I'm praying for you right now. As we near the end of yet another trail, I want to lean into the right now and ask God to enable us to make the most of the right now. Let's take a look at praying right now. Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. This literally means in the Greek to stay awake when you pray. Stay awake. Might have been a reference to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus' inner circle of disciples can't stay awake with them. He chides them for it, and then he says, oh, never mind. The idea could be don't go to sleep like they did. Rather, stay awake and alert. It could also be interpreted to mean don't pray when you're too tired or when your mind is too dull. That's time to rest. When you're awake and sharp is when it's time to pray. So what I want to do is is kind of pick this verse apart because that's sort of what I do. Verse The first thing is denote, devote yourselves. There are things we intend to do in life, and there are things we are devoted to doing. I often tell people, if they ask me to do something, I say, I apologize, but I'm going to do that right now. And I I know it's a little rude, but here's something I've learned about myself. 100% of what I do right now gets done. And the percentages start going down quickly after that. So if I want to make sure something gets done, I need to devote myself to that. I need to get at it right now. All of what we're devoted to, truly devoted to, happens. 
to devote yourself to something is to prioritize that thing. And to prioritize anything means to deprioritize other things. People who are really, 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 really great at something are almost never well-rounded. Almost never. They're they're just not particularly well-rounded people because what it takes to become really, really great at something is the neglect of almost everything else. So devote yourselves. Number two, devote yourself to what? To prayer. To pray is to communicate with God, not to lobby God to see things our way. I never get amens there, but everybody knows I'm right. (laughs) Prayer changes things, but prayer also changes us. Prayer is not bending God to our will. It's conforming ourselves to the will of God. We don't pray to change God. We pray to allow God to change us. I received a stone on Sunday that was unlike any miracle stone I'd ever received. And it showed me that we're starting to get some things here. First of all, the stone was several years old. I mean, several. And it had to do with a situation that was difficult in a family. And what the people told me was, the situation has not completely cleared up. But we have a plan for dealing with it. And we want to give you a stone. Because up to now, we haven't had a plan. And we want to thank God that we've got a plan in our pocket now. I, I, thought, I thought a little bit, what incredible faith and understanding to understand that sometimes we may not get the miracle we want, but it doesn't mean we don't get a miracle. doesn't mean we don't get a miracle. Prayer is as much a process as it is a petition. And we are to vote, devote ourselves to the process. Growing in prayer and growing in our prayer lives should be an expressed goal of every serious Christian. How do we grow in prayer? You know, a lot of times, I think, those of us that were raised in church, particularly those that were raised in certain kinds of churches, sometimes your prayer development kind of levels off around the age of eight. You guys know what I'm talking about? You memorize a few prayers, you get a few things, but it really doesn't continue to mature, and it doesn't continue to grow. I, I did a lot of, you guys do a lot of memorized prayers when you were a kid? We, we did a lot of memorized prayers. We, we did, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray to God, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray to God, my soul to take. I hated that one. It's sort of like, if God's not thinking about taking my soul, why am I reminding him? That's always seemed counterproductive to me. Uh, we, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. And then you get a little older and you turn into a smart aleck, right? And then you make up your own prayers for blessings. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. You know, you get that kind of stuff going. And then, and then you've got the Lord's Prayer, right? Then we learn the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. And then sometimes prayer beyond that becomes telling God what we want God to do. And it never moves beyond that. 
And so I, I want to say developing our prayer life should be a priority of every Christian. There's nothing wrong with hitting ball, baseballs off a tee. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with playing t-ball. If you're five, <laughs> at some point, you're going to have to hit a moving ball. And you need to grow into that. We should all strive to grow into our prayer lives. Devote yourselves to prayer. Number three, with a sharp mind. God wants our very best when we pray. You know, sometimes on Sunday mornings, I'm always grateful that people can get to church on Sunday mornings, but I, I have to come really, really early because at, by the time 8 o'clock gets here on Sunday mornings, I need to be ready to roll. You guys know, I mean, game time, ready to roll. And what happens for me is I get up, I don't know, before 6, and I get up, take the two dogs out because they're big and they want to go out. Bring them back in. Either Melissa's already up and got some food ready for them, or I feed them real quick. Go take a shower. Go get everything ready for church. Decide whether I want to look like a preacher or a lumberjack. And then I get dressed. And then I have a 30-minute drive. And that 30-minute drive is terrific for me because I almost always listen to Scripture the entire time. Often what I'm going to preach on that day. And I listen to a chapter before it and a chapter after it just to see, God, is there anything you want to whisper in my ear before we do this? You know, anything new? Lord, you got new stuff, right? And then by the time I get here, I get here about 6.30, quarter to 7, and we have a prayer time. Uh, Reverend Carmen, uh, Shelley, uh, I've got uh, Ronnie, i got a whole bunch of people that are part of this uh, group uh, who come in and they pray with us. They, they show up at 7 o'clock. In the morning, on Sunday. And they pray over us. And then I've got a while to kind of go over my sermon again, just get myself in a good place. But I've got to tell you, by the time 8 o'clock gets here, I've been awake two and a half hours. I mean, if I was playing an 8 o'clock ball game, I'm not waking up at 7.50 for it. I'm waking up, getting ready to go. Paul's saying, you know when you pray? Get your game face on. Come ready to go. You going to church? Come ready to go. Don't wake up two minutes before church and come with your hair in a wedge. Get up. Get ready. Get ready to worship. That's what Paul's saying. Lean in here. Come with a sharp mind. Let me put it another way. When you go into your prayer closet, bring your A game. Bring your A game. And then with a thankful heart. At the heart of a Christian understanding of thanksgiving... Is gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. I shared this with some folks tonight. We were chatting a little bit before church. In the last three or four years, I have absolutely reached a new level of being astounded by the beauty and wonder of the Christian faith. <laughs> I've stood with people in some of the worst times you can imagine, in this beautiful, glorious Christian faith. It's, it's so incredible. And I'm not talking about religion. A lot of dumb crap's happened in the name of religion. 
And, and religion, it gets to be a mess because religion is kind of man-made response to faith. I'm just talking about this glorious Christian faith. It astounds me. It takes my breath away. And I'm filled with thanksgiving. Do you know what God did for straight-up sinners like you and me? Do you know what God did for us? That's the whole Jesus story. It blows me away. And, and we're invited to be in communication with God. Think about it. We're utterly whacked out 98% of the time, and yet God invites us to communicate with him. You see, prayer is a privilege, not a right. The only way we could possibly pray is if God invited us to do so. It's the only way we could possibly pray. God is in a position to grant everything, but we're in a position to demand nothing from God. God, I got some huge demands for you. (laughs) Through prayer, God has given each of us his personal number. And he said, call me anytime. And I'll talk as long as you want. And if you got things you can't talk to anybody else about, you, you can talk to me. How can you not be thankful when you get your head around all that? How can you not be thankful that God wants to hang out with the likes of us? I wouldn't want to hang out with us if I was God, would you? It's amazing to me. And I find myself just blown away by the wonder of the Christian faith. Jesus is awesome. Look what he did for us. That's how we're going to celebrate Easter this year. Jesus is awesome. Look what he did for us. So this is really good news, right? That's what I'm trying to kind of get across. This is really good news. So if it's good news, we need to be sharing it, right? So the next phase of this prayer is evangelizing right now. So praying right now, let's evangelize right now. So the prayer shifts as Paul asks the Colossians to remember his ministry in prayer. Man, do I think we can learn a lot from this. Verse three, pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. I want you to hear this. He is in chains... And what's he ask them to pray about? That he could proclaim the good news as clearly as he should. Wow. That's kind of next level stuff, right? Prayer plants dynamite. Evangelism detonates it. Paul understood this. And he says, if there's going to be power in my ministry, I'm going to have to have people praying. I believe with all of my heart that the people who pray for this church regularly, and I don't think there's a gazillion of them, The people who pray for this church regularly, the people who devote their hearts to pray for this church are absolutely vital in what God is doing here. Absolutely vital. Because you can't detonate dynamite that's not been planted. Prayer plants the dynamite. You say, okay, show me some proof that God's doing something here. How's this? We take attendance every week. We we do. That's kind of what we do. We're a church. I remember I said, I'm going to be a preacher. They said, can you take attendance? I said, sure. You're in. (laughs) We take attendance every week. We've got a formula we have used for the past 28 years. Formula's not changed. It's the way we've always done it. 
So I compared January and February of last year, attendance, average, to January and February of this year, counting the exact same way. Some of it, most of it's, about half of it's live, about half's online, but it's apples to apples. Compared to January and February of last year, we are up 1,200 people a week. Think about that. We are reaching 1,200 more people every week than we did a year ago. And if you took a look at our connections number, that's the discipleship work that we do, and a lot of that is done on online platforms, we're reaching over 20,000 people a week for Jesus by live ministry and online. Well, why does this happen? I think it happens first and foremost because that dynamite is planted. So somebody said to me something, they said, can I do anything other than just pray? And I'm sitting there thinking, there's no such thing as just pray. Praying is the most important thing we do. I guarantee you, I am a dynamite detonator. That's what I do. I got to have people plant that stuff or I'm just dudding every single time. We got to have people planting the dynamite. If you want to be a part of our prayer team, show up on Sundays before seven. We meet in the sanctuary and they gather around. Did you know everybody that's on that stage is there at seven o'clock on their knees before holy God, before we start anything? It's just what we do. It's how we do it. And then the prayer team prays over every square inch of this place before they take off. Huge. You can't detonate what's not been planted. So Paul instructs the church to pray for his evangelistic enterprise. So what is his mission? To win the world for Christ. Pretty ambitious. But his world's only the Mediterranean Sea and the Roman Empire. That's his world. He wants to win every single person for Christ. What would you have asked the Colossians to pray for if you were in prison? Could anybody blame you if you asked them to pray that you'd be released? I had to cross your mind. Paul's suffering. Paul almost certainly suffered a chronic illness. It might have been malaria. I can't imagine prison life would have been great there. Uh, he could have asked that his suffering be relieved. To use his own words, that thorn in the flesh be removed. He doesn't. In fact, he seems to view his incarceration as God's unlikely plan for giving him opportunities to share the gospel that he would have never had otherwise. Instead of whining about a bad situation, he begins to see that that is God's will, God's unlikely plan. Does he understand that plan fully? No. But he's obedient. And you say, okay, so how was God honored by Paul being in prison? You tell me that. I'd be happy to, being as you said it was such a bad, smart attitude. <laughs> Paul would not have written very many letters had he been able to travel, because Paul clearly had wanderlust in his bones. He, he likes live appearances, and he seems to write only when he has to. If Paul does not get incarcerated, I don't think he writes hardly any letters. And if it's not for the letters, we don't have any record of any of this stuff. I hate to say this. 
Paul suffered, but God was playing the long game. He was playing the long game. We don't have a hunk of the New Testament without Paul's incarceration. So I think there are four elements to this right now evangelistic petition. There's the missionary enterprise, there's the offensive mentality, there's strategic deployment of personnel, and there's the written word. I want to apply this to us in our church because I believe that we too have been petitioned by God into evangelism. I I told somebody this week, you know, what our church is really, really good at is we're good at reaching people for Jesus. We're good at reaching people for Jesus. That's what we do well. Well, let's unpack that. Let's let Paul unpack it for us. Number one, the missionary enterprise. We know that Paul was not isolated in prison. He's surrounded by colleagues, and his detention area was turned into an evangelistic command center. We're going to get more into this next week. So it's a good thing to pray for the missionary enterprise of God's people. It's a good thing to lift up pastors and missionaries. It's a good thing to lift up local churches and parachurch ministries. It is a good thing to pray for souls to be saved and disciples to be made and leaders to be forged and revival to sweep across our land. Prayers like that are always in order. I hope you are praying those for us. And if you're not, I hope you start. I was mainly praying that my knee felt better. I hope your knee does feel better. (laughs) Because I've had my knees hurt too. And it's not great. But we can, in addition to knees, pray for big stuff. And I just encourage you to maybe pray little. Yeah, that's great. But also pray big, okay? Number two, offense, not defense. Making the most of faith-sharing opportunities requires readiness, situational awareness, and a willingness to be used by God. Jesus told his disciples that they would be fishers of men, people fishers. And when I think about the metaphor, I think about my dad. My dad has this evangelistic technique that we're going to actually be using a little bit this year. And it's really simple. Dad has people who make him little wooden crosses. Anybody ever see one of my dad's crosses? They're just kind of crude, handmade wooden crosses. And then they're, they're, the necklace is a piece of twine. I mean, that's it. And dad wears it outside of his jacket or outside of his shirt. So boom, he's got this cross. And then dad goes about his business. And if someone asks about the cross, if somebody says, I like your cross, dad gives it to them along with an invitation to church. And then he opens himself up to any faith conversation they may want to pursue. So dad wears his cross, somebody says they like it, dad gives it to them, they're always delighted, and dad invites them to church, and sometimes a conversation comes up. You want want to know what I think of my dad when he does that? The cross is a lure, and dad's a people fisherman. (laughs) The cross is the lure, and dad is a fisher of people. And guess what he does when it's all over? He carries multiple crosses. <laughs> he just pops another one on and keeps fishing. What do you do when you're fishing and you catch a fish? You take it off the hook and you keep fishing. That's exactly what he does. We need to play offense and not defense. We need to stop thinking all the time about 
what we're going to do if, what if somebody asks me a question I don't know? People ask me questions I don't know all the time, all the time. And guess what I tell them? Drum roll, please. I don't know. (laughs) I'll ask God about it someday. But my guess is when I stand before the Lord someday, your question is not going to be the first thing on my mind. (laughs) That's my guess. I may be wrong. Number three, strategic deployment of personnel. Despite being bit with a bad case of wonder, lust, uh, prison just has Paul pinned down. Some of you are extroverts. You're outgoing people. You love to be out and around. But for whatever reason, you might be pinned down right now. You may have a physical illness. You may have situations in your family. You're just pinned down. You're not where you want to be. Paul was not where he wanted to be. His ministry is hampered in the short term, but he is allowing God to use him in the long game. You see, sometimes we're not where we want to be, but we are where God wants us to be. And a part of the Christian life is to be faithful in your right now. I've heard so many people tell me, well, I could really be effective for Christ if. It's like somebody saying, you know, I really appreciate what you do, but, right? Whatever, you know, stop, you know, stop. I could really be effective for Christ if I just stop. I want to change that. You can really be effective for Christ right where you are if you will let God use you in your right now. You can be effective right now, right where you are. And then number four is the written word. I think it's safe to say Paul, who's very well-educated, had more training in rhetoric, speaking, than in writing. In fact, he probably penned a few, if any, of his letters. He mainly dictated, but still he wrote. I've noticed throughout history, great preachers are forgotten in two generations. Great writers are never forgotten. I'm going to say it one more time. Great preachers are forgotten in one or two generations, but great writers are never forgotten. There's no way to tell you how much greater an impact in the spoken word that Billy Graham had over Oswald Chambers. But in two generations, there won't be a lot of people in America that remember Billy Graham anymore, but they'll still be reading my utmost for his highest. Great preachers are wonderful. But great writers live forever. Paul could have made a lot more live appearances, probably converted a whole lot more people in his day had he not been incarcerated. But because he was forced to write, he's been preaching for two millennia. And he's preaching to us tonight. How's that? So now he gives some instructions for the right now. Right now instructions. Live wisely among those who are not believers. And make the most of every opportunity. That was your scripture for tonight. Caught you a little off guard, but we're good, Susan. (laughs) All right. So let me give you some right now pieces of advice. Here we go. Number one, live wisely among non-Christians. Live wisely among non-Christians. The the direct reference in the Greek says live wisely among the outsiders. For Paul, believers in the church are insiders. Paul's writings are almost always for insiders. Insiders. They're almost always for insiders. Non-believers are the outsiders. His letters are exclusively written to grow, sculpt, correct, and forge 
insiders. He is equipping the church at Colossae to authentically, persuasively, and compellingly invite outsiders in. If you're a club, you have insiders and you keep outsiders out. If you're a church, you have insiders and you invite outsiders in. That's what he's equipping them to do. We might call this a petition of strategic living. The prayer is, God, enable me to live in such a way that my witness is credible to my unbelieving neighbors. That's a good prayer, don't you think? I'm going to live in such a way that my witness is credible to my unbelieving neighbors. And let me just kind of summarize it for you. If you want to reach people for Jesus, it's really helpful if you're not a jerk. A lot of Christians a little, little, little misunderstanding with some of that. If you are a gracious, warm human being, in a good mood most time, you're going to have a lot better experience sharing Christ than if you're just highly agitated, uptight, and difficult to get along with. And I don't want to tell you there are no lists in the Bible that list the fruit of the Spirit that list agitated, uptight, or difficult to get along with. They are not fruits of the Spirit. Number two, maximize opportunities to share the gospel. The prayer is help me make the most of the opportunities, of the encounters that you place right in front of me. There's an old adage that generally plays out, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. I think this is a really popular adage in the Christian mime community, but it really makes no sense at all. None. It's really popular and I understand why people like it. It just makes no sense. At best, it's half the equation, and probably not even that. What I'm going to tell you is living a godly life is not the whole of a witness. It gives your verbal witness credibility. It's half of it. You've got to have a credible witness. Yeah, we want to live Jesus in front of people, but people don't come to Jesus through osmosis. They come to Jesus because the faith is shared with them. It's communicated with them. Bass fishing. Talked about it a little bit. It's, it's an interesting enterprise. Anybody bash, bass fishermen here? Yeah, it's an interesting enterprise. You toss out a lure and you reel it in. That's kind of on paper. That's what it looks like to the novice. And if a hungry bass hits your lure, you give the rod a tug, you set the hook, you reel the fish in in a way that it doesn't wiggle loose. But what I have found is that becoming a good bass fisherman is both an art and a science, and there's significant difference between skilled fishermen and novices like me. Some years ago, I was doing some deep sea fishing, and we were fishing for red snapper. Anybody ever done that? Oh, it's really great. And everybody was catching fish but me. And at first, I thought I was unlucky. And then it occurred to me, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> I'm just not very good at it. I would need a little bit of training before I could move up to below average. I mean, if the people next to you are catching red snapper, and the people on the other side are catching red snapper, and four-year-old kids, five people down, are catching red snapper, you're probably not a great fisherman. When I was a kid, I would throw the lure as far as I could, and then I would reel it in as fast as I could. So for me, fishing was about distance and speed. 
I think I accidentally snagged a fish once. I mean, snagged it. I caught it in the lower third toward its tail. Real fishermen take their time. Uh, their game is based on knowledge and precision. And they know stuff and not luck. I'm a blind luck guy. You know, just, just a blind luck guy. Effective evangelism is something that's going to have to be learned and cultivated. All bass fishermen and all lures are not the same. And all people fishermen and all lures are not the same. Now, you may snag one every now and then with distance and high-speed evangelism, but I'm going to tell you, you're not going to catch many. And after a while, you'll wear everybody out around you. You just wear them out. Anybody got the gift of wearing others out? That's what you'll do. What I've noticed is most fish are caught close to the shore. When I was a little kid, I thought my whole problem was that I wasn't out in the middle. And then I got noticing the people that had boats catch fish near the shore. I was fine all along. I just didn't know what I was doing. Evangelism is something you really need to learn to do. It's something we get better at. But I'm going to tell you this. If I can use an old tired adage, you're going to catch more flies with honey than vinegar. I'll tell you that every day of the week. Verse 6, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everybody. Evangelism is best done in a good mood. Can I hear an amen from somebody? This is all about the lure. The constant is that people are going to talk to other people. Have you ever noticed that? The variables are your topics and the manner in which you speak. Good people fishermen employ a game plan that draws people in, not pushes people out. Do you guys know anybody on social media who just writes the most inflammatory, insensitive thing and then can't believe that people are inflamed? It's amazing. It's like a study in a lack of self-awareness. I don't know why I'm being persecuted. You're not being persecuted. You're dumber than a bag of hammers. Anybody could see if you put that, you're going to get a, an unbelievably difficult response. Anybody could see that. So let's take a look at the basics of evangelism. Let's look at evangelism as it draws people in, not pushes people away. Because this is the substance of Paul's final prayer to the Colossians. He ends with the basics of evangelism. I've told you what you believe that you need to get rid of. I told you what you believe that you need to lean into. Now I'm telling you how to move forward as a church. And if you're going to move forward, you're going to have to reach other people for Jesus Christ. You're going to have to do it. So he gives us four things. We'll close with these. The basics of evangelism. Number one, our witness must be credible. People must see enough of Jesus in us to be interested in what we're selling. And let's face it, we're all selling something. Let's just sell Jesus. Let's introduce people in this wonderful Christian faith of ours. Let's do that, because it's awesome. It's awesome. Number two, our witness must be spoken. It's got to be communicated. There are times when Christians are instructed not to prepare, but to let the Holy Spirit speak through them in the New Testament. But these are the exceptions, not the rules. It's usually an instruction that's offered when Christians are in formal trial situations concerning their faith in Christ. That's normally when, don't worry about what to say, the Spirit will put the words in your mouth. That is an unbelievably intense situation. 
But day in and day out, you're really going to have to have a plan. You're just going to have to have a plan. Sharing a testimony, offering an invitation to church, or having a Jesus conversation are really skill sets. And they get better with practice. And sometimes it's just a real simple plan. I'm going to wear a Christ Church piece of gear, and if someone asks about it, I'm going to hand them an invitation card. That's a plan. That's a plan. You know, that's something you're running. But you got to be ready for that. Some of the worst sermons I've ever heard began with these words. I didn't prepare anything today. I'm just going to speak what God puts on my heart. <laughs> worst sermons I've ever heard. Now I'm at a point where I just get up and leave if they say that. I do because I just saved myself like 30 minutes of my life. I'll never get back. Sermons are things that we need to stay before the Lord on. I, I, I spend hours and hours and hours on my messages. Now, if I get up and God says, go a little bit different direction, I need to be willing to go a little bit different direction. Amen? But for the most part, I'm pretty convinced the Lord works in my study just fine. If he gives me a little extra something, we'll share that. But I've noticed over my life, the times I've really gotten myself in trouble preaching are in my extra something experiences. You know, the extra something. So that's where the, that'll, that'll land you in trouble. So our witness has to be spoken. I've argued before that a bad witness is better than no witness, and I still believe that to be true. I know a lot of people who have received Christ after being offered a really horrible witness by somebody. But I've never known anybody receive Christ who didn't get witness to at all. So a bad witness is better than no witness, but a good witness is a whole lot better than a bad witness. And you won't wear everybody out. Number three, our witness must be winsome. In fact, the, the Greek really suggests charming. You know, everybody's charming. The most effective witness responds to an express need. So I'm a huge advocate of praying on the spot with people. Praying on the spot is really simple. You know, you go through life, you ask people how they're doing, and I do this all the time. You know, how's it going? Fine. How's it going? Fine. And then every now and then you run, how's it going? I'm having a really rough time. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, I need to stop. This could be a God moment, right? What's going on with you? Well, I've got something going on in my family. Things are really, really tough for me right now. And then we simply say, may I pray for you? May I pray for you? That's it. And guess what they say every single time? Yes. They say yes, because they're hurting. If they weren't hurting, they would have said fine. Even if they were hurting just a little, they would have said fine. Because you all know what fine means. Beat it. <laughs> right? How you doing? Beat it. Fine. Same thing. It's a synonym. But when you tell people you're hurting... You're reaching out. May I pray for you? And then pray for them. You say, I don't know how to do that. Okay, work on it. There's all kinds of stuff I don't know how to do, and I work on it. I don't know how to pronounce some things, so I work on it. So here's a good prayer. Dear God, be with my friend. I'm sorry that they're hurting today. Would you do what only you could do in their family and let them know that you care about them, and I care too? In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Awesome. I'm not saying that because I just made it up. It's a simple prayer. Anybody could pray. 
dear God, just please be with my friend. Let them know that they're loved. Amen. That's a good prayer. Let it come from your heart. And after that's over, you've established a different type of relationship with that person. And who knows what happens after that in that spiritual relationship. Uh, And often prayers on the spot are the beginning of a thing, not the end of a thing. Yeah. They'll come back. Sometimes they'll say, hey, God answered my prayer. Uh, Those are pretty powerful things. And then finally, our witness must be spirit-filled. There's the intangible, the Holy Spirit. We can prepare to witness. Someone can have legitimate interest. But it's the Holy Spirit who gives firepower. So please don't think you practicing a lot replaces the role of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't. It's just you doing your part. I said last week we had a sign up in my uh, locker room when I was in high school. And it said, what you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. So practicing and doing our best and what we're capable of doing is God's gift to us. But allowing the Holy Spirit to, 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 to be a part of that is what makes all the difference in the world. I've known really good communicators who preached, but they didn't preach under the firepower of the Holy Spirit, and they were simply entertaining. And I would rather hear an entertaining sermon than a non-entertaining sermon. I'm going to tell you that every day of the week. But I'd rather hear an entertaining sermon had some Holy Ghost firepower in it. And that's where that happens. So realize it's the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to understand is when we share our faith, we're not selling vacuums door to door. God is empowering us through the person of the Holy Spirit to share this wonderful Christian faith with his hurting and beloved sons and daughters. How's that not awesome? How's that not awesome? Who doesn't want to know that they're loved? Who doesn't want to know that they're cared for? Who doesn't respond to compassion for heaven's sakes? So let me just kind of wrap this up in a simple thought here, okay? Preparation... Plus, plus prayer puts us in a position to receive power. So preparation plus prayer. So I would work on your prayer. You say, well, I'm not good at memorizing things. Guys, it's only going to be like a sentence and a half. I bet you could knock that out in a few hours, right? I mean, preparation plus prayer equal power. So I prepare, we pray, and we put ourselves in position for God to do something really wonderful. Every week I prepare my messages and then I pray that God would give me insights and that God would just light things up. And then I believe with all of my heart that in that interchange that God does things only God can do. Only God can do. So I thought we would close with a prayer tonight. And the prayer is coming straight out of the scripture because I'm convinced one of the best and most effective ways to pray is straight out of the scripture. Because anytime we pray what the scripture asks us to pray, we always know we're praying something that is God's will for us. When we start telling God what all we want God to do, we may be out on our own or on thin ice. But we're not when we pray the scripture. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray for your work around the world and your work at Christ Church. We additionally pray that you would make us gracious credible, and effective evangelists. Help us to share our faith in such a way that it draws people to salvation.
Help us to live wisely, speak graciously, and make the most of the opportunities you give to us. We pray in Jesus' strong name, amen. And that's a prayer God always wants to answer.